podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Opioid use disorder is a significant public health issue affecting millions of Americans. In fact, in 2019, over 21 and a half million Americans needed treatment for OUD, but only two and a half million received any treatment. That's seven out of every eight people going untreated. Patients with opioid use disorder will likely relapse, but that doesn't mean the treatment or the patient failed. It just means the treatment needs to be adjusted or changed. This is a treatable disease and can be safely managed or initiated by most advanced practice providers. We need to increase the number of patients receiving treatment by educating ourselves and our colleagues and by addressing all disease processes using a holistic approach to wellness. In this engaging episode, nurse practitioners Dr. Laura Leahy and Colleen Berry share their expertise and knowledge as they discuss various aspects of opioid use disorder. They also inspire us to think about the language we use and the importance of treating our patients with dignity, honesty, and respect while navigating the challenges of their recovery toward health. Welcome back to NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. If you tune into part one of the podcast, my colleague Colleen Barry and I took you on a journey into opioid use disorder. How did we get here? In part two of this podcast, we'd like to explore where do we go from here? The opioid epidemic has certainly not diminished and in fact has attributed to more than 100,000 deaths in the last year. As advanced practice nurses, we must be prepared to partner with our patients early in this chronic relapsing disease process to offer the most favorable outcomes for our patient's recovery journey. So Colleen, I'd like to kick it off with you and ask, where do we go from here? Where we go from here is treating this as a medical disease. One of the first things we're going to do is we're going to start identifying these patients as they come into our office. We're going to screen them, open the conversation do some brief intervention, find out what kind of treatment they're interested in, if any, and then start working with them on our comfort level. Are we ready to start medication or do we want to start talking about referrals? Knowing what's available in our area is very important to start the treatment for the opioid use disorder. Not only that, but again, collaborating with our patient. Obviously, If the patient would like to choose methadone because they feel they need the daily support of a methadone clinic, that daily check-in with a practitioner, but closest methadone clinic's 30 miles away, that might not be a realistic option for that patient. So we need to look at that component. Or if they have children in tow, is it going to be realistic to take three buses to their primary care office to obtain their extended release naltrexone injection on a monthly basis? We have to take into consideration all of those aspects of our patients' lives so that they can get the treatment that they need, just like we would any of our patients. If it's not realistic, can they afford it? Are these treatments that we're proposing realistic? Sometimes I want more for my patients than they want for themselves, and that's something that we also can have a conversation about. 
You know, these patients aren't just lost causes, they're lives, they're human beings, and they're worth saving. And every time we are able to offer intervention that leads to another day of recovery, we are saving a life for this patient. Absolutely. We always offer Narcan when they first come in, anybody with an opioid use disorder. And we definitely want to talk about safe drug use as well. If they're, if they're able to trust you enough to tell you that they're using, we want to talk about what are you using? How are you using it? Are you using injectables or intravenous? Are you snorting? Are you swallowing the medication? How are you taking it? Where are you getting it from? Without, of course, going into detail. And then ask them, when's the last time you've used? What kind of symptoms are you having? This way we can also start talking about medication. If it's been a week since you've used, we're going to offer the antagonist to see if maybe we can get their cravings under control or prevent them from relapsing. If they've just used within the last 24 to 48 hours and they're not feeling well, we can talk about possibly induction onto a partial opioid, partial agonist like, like buprenorphine. Some of them have already tried them in the past. Sometimes they'll say, this is what I want. And then we can start talking to them about how do we get there and how do we start this. I think those are good points. And we still have the opioid epidemic within the pandemic of COVID. COVID did give us some opportunities here in terms of treatment for use disorders, in particular opioid use disorders. It loosened some of the regulations that were previously in place. In particular, the methadone clinics were able to give longer periods of time for take-home doses. So it allowed our patients to have a more normalized experience. You know, example of a patient going on vacation. How will they go on vacation, which is a normal experience? If they're getting back to life, how are they going to go on a vacation if they're tethered to the clinic every single day? Or they can only go for a weekend. So we're instilling some of our values, regulations on individuals and determining that they aren't capable of managing their own lives. So the freedom of utilizing things like buprenorphine in an outpatient setting or extended release naltrexone in an outpatient setting does give our patients a more normalized experience. Not only that, COVID opened the doors to telehealth and bringing us closer to our patients in a very immediate manner through the use of technology. You mentioned inductions. Inductions have historically been done in the office over a couple of hours to monitor our patient coming in in the early stage of withdrawal, beginning buprenorphine treatment and monitoring vital signs and the aspects of withdrawal until they were stabilized medically. Telehealth now allows us to do that in vivo, in the patient's own area. We can also medically supervise withdrawal utilizing telehealth technologies and see our patients on a more regular basis. Patients, again, who may not have the money or means to get to our offices could be seen through telehealth technology, which has been an opening for patients with opioid use disorder. Yes, and patients can call in and let us know what kind of symptoms they're having. If they were to try to maintain abstinence to start medication, we may need to offer some comfort medications based on their symptoms. So sometimes them reaching out to us and discussing with us can actually help prevent a relapse or even an overdose. If we're not able to handle their symptoms for them, they're going to seek an opioid off the streets. And then again, therapy is, is a huge part of the medicated assisted treatment for the opioid use disorder. So 
seeing a therapist via telehealth is now available, but we're also recommending them do other sober support activities, which would be seek out peer support or seek out an online meeting. Because of COVID now and the transportation issues, the gas prices, sometimes going online and attending a meeting online can be very helpful for a lot of our patients. That's a great point. I've had patients who say, you know, I'm up in the middle of the night. That's the time that I usually want to go out and find my dealer so they can score another bag of heroin or what have you. And now they can log in any time of day and find a meeting because it opened up around the world. When NA and AA made virtual meetings available, we now have the world. So that two o'clock in the morning patient isn't tied to their local community meeting. They can log into one in Australia, for example. And I've had patients do that. The language barrier gets a little dicey at times, but they've found it helpful just to know that they can actually be in the presence of other individuals going through similar situations to them. And that is so important. This is a long-term commitment. Depending on what the patient needs at this time, it can change at any time. We have some patients that'll come in and say, I need inpatient for a while. I need residential. I need sober support. I need sober living. Or they can do it just visiting their outpatient facility or their primary care provider. This is a long-term commitment that we're asking these patients to make, just like if we were to diagnose them with any other health disease process, like diabetes. We're not going to ask them to change their diet for a period of three months. We're going to ask them to make lifestyle changes for the rest of their lives. When I talk to my patients about life changing, I tell them the pathway to addiction is like a path in their backyard. It's going to be there forever. The biggest thing I want them to do is I want them to build a fence in front of it, plant a tree, plant a garden. You can make it as beautiful as you want to, and that's your recovery. That's your immediate recovery process. You've developed a peer supporter. You've got a sponsor. You're doing IOP, intensive outpatient treatment. You've built everything in front of that big addiction pathway that you could think of. But if you don't go out there every day and maintain it, everything's going to fall apart. The fence is going to start to peel. The tree is going to die. The flowers are going to die. And then the pathway is going to be there again. So I remind these patients every day, you've got to go out and you've got to tend to your garden. Whatever you've built for your sober support and your structure, you've got to maintain that every day for the rest of your life. That's a great visual because that is exactly it. Without the water and without the sunshine and everything else that goes in, the garden's going to wither and die. And our patients see this every single day in their experiences. However, we also, I mean, I know we've talked a bit about and kind of danced around those individuals who have a use disorder and are obtaining, say, heroin, which is now heavily laced with fentanyl on the street, which puts a whole new twist on how we begin to treat our patients with opioid use disorder because the synthetic fentanyl that's out there doesn't have the half-lives that we know. It doesn't have a potency assigned to it. So we're dealing with a different animal and just trying to dance around. How do we start a treatment for a patient? How do we either have them through a medically supervised withdrawal to abstinence to transition to extended release naltrexone, for instance, or in the throes of withdrawal to buprenorphine? With fentanyl out there, we need to look at the response of our patients when we are looking at that withdrawal response. 
because many of our patients are experiencing precipitated withdrawal. And that is probably one of the A number one reasons our patients may not trust us. If we initiate a treatment for them and it sends them into precipitated withdrawal, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to trust us again. So we need to have those conversations with our patients too, because we just don't know we don't have the knowledge at this point as to what the street fentanyl is doing for our patients. You're absolutely right. Educating the patient before starting any medication is important. Most of our patients will be honest with us, but sometimes they just don't know. I recently had a patient who had had sublocade, which is an injectable form of the buprenorphine. Literature that I've read shows that the sublocade releases for three to six months, according to the inserts. Sometimes I've read up to a year. This patient had been sober for 12, 14 months, and we started her on an antagonist and she went into precipitated withdrawal. So we don't know what could happen. We always want to educate our patients. We want to monitor them when we start them on new medications and then talk about comfort meds. There's a lot of medication out there that can help alleviate some of these symptoms. But the more we know about these medications and the more we know about the drugs that are coming out on the streets, the better we can help our patients. So there's always information available. The CDC has information. There's always information on these new synthetic drugs that are on the streets that we need to really keep an eye on. Absolutely. And not for nothing, but many of our patients are not solely opioid users. They will often use with some other substance, more often than not benzodiazepines, and also cocaine or methamphetamine are two of the most prominent dual use agents for our patients. So we need to take those things into consideration too when we're looking at the overall health of our patient because we're not just dealing with one substance. And this brings us back to harm reduction. How do we obtain harm reduction for our patient? Is it okay? We're not just trading one drug for another when we institute medication for opioid use disorder with our patient. Is it okay for that patient while we're treating the opioid use disorder to continue to use cocaine or methamphetamine or marijuana for that matter? These substances are out there and just like treating a patient with diabetes and hypertension, we wouldn't alienate them for not treating the other disorder. So how do we go about addressing that in a harm reduction manner, Colleen? So I actually have had this quite a few times. Patients will come in and start medication for opioid use disorder, yet continue to use Adderall or cocaine or methamphetamines because according to them, they're still trying to get a high. They're still trying to get numb. They're still trying to figure out how to live life sober. They can't use an opioid now that they're on medication. So they're choosing another form. The biggest thing that we have to do is education and therapy. We've got to address the issues of why they continue to use. And we remind them every day, you're buying substances from a drug dealer. There are no drug dealers out there that I can trust. I'm sure that you shouldn't be trusting yours either. You're buying marijuana from a dealer that sells cocaine, meth, and opioids. You can't go to the dealer and say, can I just have marijuana? They're going to reuse bags. They're going to slip stuff in there to try to get you to buy things that they want you to buy. There's so many things out there that can affect the patient, cause an overdose that they're not intending to do. This is where therapy comes in. This is where education comes in. You know, for a while there, we were seeing a lot of overdoses out in public places. These patients do not want to die. They want to feel better. 
they'll use in a public bathroom in, in hopes that if they do overdose, someone will find them. Many patients have been brought into the ICUs because they were found behind a bathroom door. So we're reminding these patients, if you're going to use, please use in front of somebody. Please tell someone that you're using. Please have Narcan in the house. And if you use cocaine, you don't know what it's laced with. Always assume that whatever you buy from your drug dealer, whatever you buy off the street, has the potential to end your life. That's a great point. And I can't stress the Narcan enough. Any one of us can walk into a pharmacy today and ask for a prescription of Narcan, and it will be given to you. Many states have instituted Narcan programs. Many of state's surgeon generals have basically a carte blanche prescription that's available to every citizen of their state to go in and be able to access Narcan. And coming up on someone who you suspect may have had an opioid overdose, administration of Narcan, you're not going to get in trouble. We have Good Samaritan laws related to that, just like we do for those of us who initiate CPR coming upon a scene of an accident, for instance. The use of Narcan, I can't stress it widely enough. We as healthcare providers should have it you know, my purse is not big enough, but I can still fit Narcan in it. It's a really important agent to carry with us as healthcare providers because you never know. It's typically, as Colleen said, it's behind those bathroom doors that we stumble upon someone. Right. And you can't hurt anyone by giving the naloxone to someone who is not suffering an opioid overdose. There's even a website, I believe it's called Naloxone for All. You can actually go online, fill out a little information about yourself, whether you're using it for you or somebody else, and then they show a brief video and they will ship it right to your house. And you might say, well, how can a patient who's overdosed administer Narcan? It just goes back to your point, Colleen, that we should stress to our patients not to use alone so that there is someone there with them. Yet so many of our patients feel that shame and often use alone. I can tell you I've had many of my patients that were very, very secretive. They lived kind of dual lives during opioid use disorder and would go to work, but then come home, use IV heroin or prescription opioids. Many of my patients had been in school and were utilizing prescription opioids, living this dual life that no one seemed to know about. And it's really important to share the Narcan with them. Narcan's only going to be good if someone else can administer it for them. And that's something we really need to stress to our patients as a point of education. I think that's one thing that we as nurses do very, very well is provide education. And you may be sitting here listening to this and Colleen and I have kind of bantered back and forth with the aspects of needing to provide therapy. You may say to yourself, but I'm not a therapist. You don't have to be. You don't have to be a therapist. Providing understanding, providing education to your patient, providing support and resources, and just accepting them as for whom they are, an individual in need of treatment, is going to be therapeutic in and of itself. I absolutely love motivational interviewing. So when I sit down with a patient and they start to explain a little bit about what they've been doing, I ask them how they feel about it. I ask them what their goals are, what they need from me. My favorite thing to say is, what can I do for you? They've developed that relationship with us. They're starting to trust us. They're going to start telling us things. And we need to listen and we need to remain judgment-free. 
you know, we're the specialists here. We are the ones with the education. We're the ones that understand the addiction process and, and the disease process. We're the ones that can say, I can help you with this. This is what I have to offer you. Let's talk about it and see how this fits in with what your goals are. We can't always help them on day one. Sometimes it takes two or three meetings before they start to accept that they want to start some medication. One of my favorite stories is I had a, a young girl come into me and wanted to start medication for opioid use disorder, and then she disappeared on the day she was supposed to receive her first injection. Three months later, she walked into my office. No appointment. She just came in, went to the front desk and said, I want to see Colleen. So I brought her back immediately and I said, where have you been? She said, I've been in jail for three months. She's been in jail. She's sober. She's ready to start treatment. She is now five years in recovery and she just graduated with her degree in criminal justice. So recovery happens. We just have to be the ones to say, what can I do for you? What can we do to start this health process of recovery? And that brings up a great point that recovery absolutely should be celebrated. Just like the birth of a child, in many ways, when I go through this process with my patients and they reach milestone after milestone in their recovery, it's a celebration. Short of witnessing childbirth in my nursing experience, watching someone go from the throes of withdrawal through an induction and then come out the other side and maintain their abstinence, maintain their recovery for long periods of time and achieve accomplishments, achieve that reconciliation with their family and friends, move on to educational or occupational pursuits and follow through with those things and develop relationships. I have a patient similarly, Colleen, who utilized many of the resources available and once he was able to begin his recovery, he went on to become a peer support counselor, which triggered a number of things for him because the talking of the stigma and the shame triggered a lot of things for him. But he finished that peer support recovery program and then went on to utilize the Division of Vocational Rehabilitative Services available through our state. And they were able to support him in obtaining a college degree. He's going on to work with individuals as an occupational therapist and hoping to work with individuals who struggle with use disorders and mental health conditions. He just got married in January. They're expecting a child. It's truly a celebration. And we need to look at that for our patients. If they utilize medications for opioid use disorder, they're not just swapping out one drug for another. This is part of treatment and part of helping them regain their life and their health and their overall quality of living. I hear people say that all the time, you're just swapping one drug for another. No, we're not. We're taking them off the streets. We're giving them medication that we know what it is. We know what's in it. We know how it works. We know how to monitor it and we know how to prescribe it. So now their symptoms are under control. Their cravings are under control. They're safe. They're not going to die. This is where we start the treatment. You're bringing them in in a safe environment, and this is where recovery happens. I absolutely love to hear recovery stories like this. They happen all the time. Two of my favorite recovery stories would be I wrote letters to help registered nurses who had lost their license due to opioid use disorder get their license back. Through recovery, through medicated-assisted treatment, 
through a long-standing recovery support system, they are now back in the field of nursing where they belong, and they're going to help guide patients as they see them to help them out because they know they've been there and they know the way out. That's so true. My father's been in the hospital over the last week, and yesterday he had a new nurse taking care of him for his discharge. And we were talking about a couple of different things, and somehow or another, substance use came up. And he said, and by the way, I'm 10 years in recovery, and I had taken a couple of the AANP opioid pocket guides with me to the hospital because every unit of the hospital has patients struggling not only with their medical conditions, but many patients struggling dually with their addiction, whether it's opioids or other. And he said, wow, this is awesome. And again, you know, those things should be celebrated. He's back in the field of nursing. He's a productive. He's feeling good about himself and the work that he's doing that he was meant to do prior to his many years of, of substance use disorder and was not inhibited to share that. And I think that that's an important piece that needs to be stressed is we don't have to have that stigma and shame any longer that you are an individual struggling with a disorder just like anyone else, just like my father was in the hospital for cardiac care. And our patients deserve that same type of respect. I think as nurses, we have this wonderful, wonderful opportunity to partner with our patients and the privilege of working with them, regardless of their ailment, regardless of whether it's a use disorder or cardiac condition, asthma, broken bone, what have you. And it's a really important and privileged occupation that we are in. In fact, there's a great quote from someone in the National Health System in Wales that says, when you're a nurse, you know that every day you will touch a life or life will touch yours. And that's so true. If we look at each and every one of our patients, regardless of opioid use disorder or what have you, we are touched by these individuals. Sometimes in not such a great way. I've certainly had my share of patients with opioid use disorder curse me out because they wanted something in particular in that moment, or they wanted an appointment in that moment. They dropped off and didn't make their appointment and now had to wait. But we are privileged and they will touch our lives in many different ways. And if we see them through and hang in there with them, it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding. We are. And you're setting boundaries, something they may never have had. So you're letting them know that no matter how they treat you, you're not going to walk away. You're going to set those boundaries. You're going to tell them you're not going to talk to me like this. We're going to work as a team. And then you'll see them start to change how they interact with you. One of my favorite quotes is, it's an anonymous quote, I don't want you to save my life. I want you to stand beside me while I save my own. Part of the reason I wanted to do this resource guide was so many of the substance use disorders are being treated in a psychiatric or a behavioral health setting. I want to expand this to primary care. I want our primary care providers to understand that these patients are already there. They're already in your practice. You're not opening the door with a flag that says, anybody, come on, I'll help you. You're helping the patients you already have. Get rid of that stigma. Address these patients as whole patients and all of their medical conditions, not just the ones that you want to treat or the ones that you're comfortable treating. We're going to try to address them all. We've got gastroenterologists that are treating hep C. These patients may have an opioid use disorder. Dentist office, chronic pain management, 
all of these providers out there, specialists, you know, even cardiologists, these patients may have an opioid or some sort of substance use disorder that has led them to a more severe physical complaint. I want all of these providers to understand how this disease process works and how to treat it because this doesn't have to be isolated to just the psychiatric and behavioral health setting. This can be expanded to all aspects of nurse practitioners' practice. That also, for those of you who are listening and working as correctional nurses, whether it's advanced practice on the RN, whether it's nursing assistant, LPN level, regardless of level, the, the correctional system has seen its share of individuals with substance use disorder. I think it's estimated that 50% or more of individuals who end up in correctional facilities have some form of use disorder. So in a sense, correctional facilities have become de facto detoxification or supervised withdrawal facilities. Looking at our patients, we're hoping to decriminalize the idea that a use disorder or misuse is a criminal event. I don't know that we're fully there yet within our country, but we are working on it. And the more that we see this as a disease of the brain, as opposed to psychosocial willful event in a person's life, the closer we will get to understanding and being able to treat our patients in this more holistic manner. I mean, we've come a long way from the 80s. If you're as old as I am, you can remember the egg frying in a pan or on the hood of the car, this is your brain on drugs. Now we can actually see spec scan images of our brain on drugs, which looks like excoriated Swiss cheese mass. And also the more hopeful thing is we can see those same images once our patients enter into a recovery lifestyle and that brain tissue regenerates. It does. Many of our patients want to know, have I just destroyed my brain? Is this even worth it to go through treatment? And unequivocally, the answer is yes, because our brain is a remarkable machine. That neuroplasticity, the regeneration of brain cells can come back better than ever. And I've witnessed that in so many of my patients who have entered into the recovery journey. I absolutely love that. And you're absolutely right. This is not a death sentence. This is not something that will prevent them from becoming useful members of society. This is an obstacle that they can overcome and they can absolutely get better. So Colleen, this has really been great. I'm so glad we had the opportunity to share opioid use disorder, the whole manifestation of how it has impacted our society, impacted healthcare. And looking at this chronic relapsing disease and understanding the unintentional and oftentimes fatal consequences that come from opioid overdoses, that we as nurses have this opportunity and this privilege to be able to help our patients discover something new. I just want to thank everyone for listening. I know for myself and I know for you, Laura, this is a passion of ours, educating as many people as possible to help these patients. We need to make sure that the medication, the therapy, everything is out there to help these patients enter long-term recovery. Thank you, Laura and Colleen, for joining us on NP Pulse. 
I want to personally thank you for sharing your expertise on this extremely important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode as valuable as I did. Be sure to visit aamp.org and check out our Opioid Use Disorder Point-of-Care Tool, which has resources and tools for identifying, screening, and managing patients with OUD. The link can also be found in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner.